It's a great joy for me to get to introduce uh, poets, poets in our campus, and um, poets that I'm familiar with and that I'm becoming familiar with. And uh, um, I, I was very fortunate to read your, to have your your work and take my time to read it. And I think that that's the beauty of poetry, that it's not uh, instant reading, that it doesn't happen in a second, but you almost linger through, through a book of poems, through, through one poem. So I will introduce both poets, first Anise and then Marilyn. So I'll just begin with these few words. As I read The Feather Room, by Anis Morjani, I am reminded of one very special verse in Pablo Neruda's Ode to an Onion. He says that the onion, which is a she in Spanish, la cebolla, and this is the verse in Spanish, la cebolla es una rizada pluma de oro. The onion is a curly gold feather. In the feather room, feathers are curly and they are golden. They are signs that allow us to imagine the expected and the unexpected. The feathers are whimsical and appear at the birth of the poem. And I quote, I was born with them in my arms, would stay up at night plucking them out. And then the feathers appear insinuating with vividness the enigmas as well as the beauties of nature, the departure of the geese from the darkness outside. I hear the geese in the field. I watch for them in the sky. On clear nights, the world looks like an ocean. I listen for the stars. This is Anis verses. Nature in its immense and invisible magnificence, the natural world deeply threatened with the human experience of consciousness is presented in this collection with almost an incantation about what we do not see but know is there and what we named with humbleness and with clarity. Feathers, the flight of geese, the universe as an ocean, these are the extraordinary and mesmerizing images that accompany the poetic spaces of Anis Mojani in either narrative verses as if telling ancient and new stories or in lyrical prose, we enter a world made new, a world that we learn to look at as if it's newborn, where poetry is the universe. And I quote, like in the poem Islands, holding the gentle storm in my head, inside this gentle body of paper, I float. The Feather Rooms is also a meditation about voyages and encounters, from New York to Avignon, from a yellow room trapped with birds. We are taken gently, often swiftly, through the eyes of the poet, who is able to show us what is unseen, what is unsaid, and then what can be said with tenderness and defiance. But the journeys are more essential than the destinations, the process of encounter more revealing than what is found as we are engaged with utter honesty in the world the poet sees and he so generously reveals his world 
to us. And I'm quoting, hello, I think that perhaps I have been here before, that perhaps I have seen your face before, that I know you, that there is a field in you. Anis Morjani is refreshing, witty, and always an original. We are graced by his voice and by his sense of enchanting the world, and so very blessed to have him in the rich field of American poetry, even more enriched by his presence. And now I'd like to say a few words about Marilyn Nelson's world. If poetry is often an intimate dialogue of reciprocity between the poet and the reader, between image and sound, between silence and song, Faster Than Light is a dialogue with history. The work of Marilyn Nelson is extraordinary in so many ways. The range of voices, the variety of narrations found in each of these voices, experience, places, and encounters. But mostly she's able to bring the reader to become history, as if we are facing it. We meet a young boy, Lynch, in 1955. We meet the people of Seneca Village. We encounter the Tuskegee soldiers with a new strength, originality, and a freshness, as if we are also a part of this history often kept invisible, almost always unknown. As I read Mary Nelson's work, I feel she belongs to the great family of poetry and poets, of witness to the sisterhood and brotherhood of voices such as Langston Hughes, Muriel Rukeyser, Denise Levertov, Pablo Neruda, Nassim Hikbet, a poetry that because of its courage, allows you to enter sites of darkness, transformed by sites of light, as we encounter history as a dialogue, as an engagement, as an encounter, with both historical and personal memory. Marilyn Nelson engages her verse with histories, historical figures, and times, and she has the uncanny capability to register experience with an elegant lyricism and challenges us to see, to feel, to understand. And I quote her verse, by the time I was 36, I had been sold three times. I had spent money out of sweat. I had been cheated and beaten. I had paid an enormous sum for my freedom. And when we hear Miss Lady's lament, she says, for every season, sum up to starlight, I have scrap, need, one woman alone, except for my children, the world so white, nobody knows my pain, but fortune's bones. This is Marilyn Nelson's world, and the world of a variety of portraits of a very white America. Not with an accusatory streeting voice, but with a voice that has the revelatory powers to bring the reader to this other side of history. We are invisible and marginal people gather and speak powerfully their truth. Where humbleness and vulnerability is the source of strength, 
and where the powerless are given Marilyn Nelson's voice so that they too can exist in the luminosity that only poetry can allow. This is also a collection, like an East Poems, about voyages from Africa to Mexico, to many places in Africa, to places Marilyn Nelson transforms them as their own. But also here, the voyage is more essential than the arrival. And as the great Spanish poet says, there is no road you make the road as you walk. So please join us in welcoming these two poets. Thank you, Marjorie. Can you all hear me fine? All right. Come closer. Come closer. Come into this. Come closer. You are quite the beauty. If no one has ever told you that before, know that right now, you are quite the beauty. There is joy in how your mouths dance with your teeth. Your smiles are simply signs of how sacred your life actually is, so step into it. Come closer. Know that whatever God might be, he asked the world to help him make something of worth. He woke from dreaming, scraped soil from the spaces, stuck somewhere inside himself. He made you when he was happy. You make the Lord happy. Come into this. Come closer. Know that something softer than us, but just as holy, planted pieces of himself into our feet that we might one day dance our way back. Know that you are almost home. Come just a little bit closer. There are birds that beat their wings beneath your breastplates. Gentle sparrows that ache to sing, come aching hearts, come soldiers of joy, doormen of truth, know that my heart was too big for my body, so I let it go, and most days this world has thinned me, to the point where I'm just another cloud, forgetting another flock of swans, but believe me when I tell you that my soul, it still manages to squeeze into narrow spaces, place your hand beneath your head when you sleep tonight, perhaps you will find it there. Making beauty as we sleep, as we dream, as we turn over. When we turn over in the ground, may the ghosts that we have asked our answers of do that turning, kneading us into crumbs of light and into this thing, love thing called life. Come into it. Come, you wooden museums, gentle tigers, little giants. I see teacups upside down, glowing across your grins. Your hearts are like my hands. Some days, all they do is tremble. I'm like you. I'm just like you. I too at times am filled with so much fear, but like a hallway must find the strength to walk through it, walk through this with me, through this church of blood, bone, and muscle that is ours. There is a doorknob that glows like chance before you. Grab it, turn, and pull. Step through, back straight, chin up, eyes open, hearts loud, hearts loud. Walk through this with me. Thank you. In, um, in about a month, I'll have been married two years, and uh, there's a poem I wrote about how my wife makes me feel. <coughs> and very often when I do that in my shows, announce that, the audience then goes, oh. <laughs> 
and then so let's try. And then I, I have a joke that I do. So let's try that. We'll we'll do this again. <laughs> so this is a poem I wrote about how my wife makes me feel. Aww. You haven't heard the joke, the the, the poem yet. <laughs> And so then I pontificate about some strange reason about why I actually married my wife. Like, her dad has sizable land holdings and it's not long for this world or, like, such and such. But I won't bore y'all with that today. I'll just, get, I'll just get to the meat. No gravy, just meat. Yeah. So this is how she makes me feel. Like a nuclear reactor power plant that harnesses not any strange harmful energy but rather the energy of the sun of daisies, of golden marbles filled up past the brim. Behind me there is a rainbow. The nuclear reactor that I am harnesses the power of that rainbow as well, capturing the whole spectrum of color and light. This is how she makes me feel. Like a great gray stone tall tower that rises up out of the ocean. From my window at the top of that tower, I watch the world. I watch the waves. There is nothing but ocean for so far. From up here, the ocean looks like it is the biggest thing in the universe. From up here, it is the universe. From my room, sitting atop the top of the universe, watching its waves of water move in unison together, I feel like maybe I am bigger. This is how she makes me feel. Like I was 17, running slow motion through a field lit with light, particles of dust moving through the air, the sun burning through their bodies. Perhaps it is dust, perhaps it is magic dust. Perhaps this magical dust is what I am made from. I open my eyes and everything I see floats. I'm on a boat. It is night. The world has calmed itself just to hold me inside all that is darkness, just to rock me gently. This is how she makes me feel. The subway chambers of Moscow I am vaulted. I have giant chandeliers hanging from my underground ceilings. I glow with so much light. I am a ballroom for the trains of Russia. If you happen to be a child that has climbed down my steps to yell into my body, those echoes will bounce their way across the vaulted underground ceilings. This happens all the time. My dark tunnels are filled with these sounds. This is how she makes me feel. Like I will live forever. Like there is nothing that could possibly harm me. Like this body will somehow stay young and perfect. There are cities growing inside my chest. The cities all look like New York in the 50s. Every building is tall enough to touch a cloud. Every automobile is a convertible. All the men wear hats and neckties. The women all have beautiful shapes of color draping them. Someone has saved a baby. There is a parade. (laughs) Someone has saved all the babies. There is the biggest parade moving through my streets. The skies explode with ticker tape. Strangers kiss on every corner. Their kisses are what make me live forever. This is how she makes me feel. Like honey and trombones. Thank you. Yeah, um, I was saying to, to Marilyn earlier that I, I don't often write a whole lot of political poems, um, not because there aren't things in this world that piss me off, but rather because by the time I sit down to write, they don't piss me off as much. <laughs> the, uh, so, uh, but this was an assignment um, there's this show <clears throat> called The Encyclopedia Show that originated in Chicago. 
and they invite uh, primarily writers, but also musicians, filmmakers, just artists, to uh, create work for specific assignments. Each show has a specific subject, such as maybe bears, and then everybody gets assigned a certain subtopic. So someone has to create something about the grizzly bear, and someone the Corinthian bear, and someone about the Chicago bears. And uh, I, I, I like to describe it as sort of a literary variety show, variety show of fact and bullshit. Um, <laughs> So this is, uh, we were doing one in Austin, Texas, where I live, on stereotypes. And this is 21 thoughts on the stereotype that all brown people are terrorists. And uh, since it sometimes feels long to me when I read it out loud, I may jump around. So don't feel like, oh, did I, did I miss one? Did he skip a number? 21 thoughts on the stereotype that all brown people are terrorists. One, my mother is black, my father Iranian. As an American, this means that I am born under two bad signs. <laughs> two, acts of terror are constituted by the use of violence against civilians to intimidate and induce fear. Three, I'm not certain, but I do not think every brown thing is hoping to commit acts of terror. I've encountered a number of brown dogs that were not terrorists. This is not to equate the brown man with the dog. I'm just saying it's interesting. Four. I have known my fair share of white dogs that were total shits. <laughs> Five. My parents have three brown chairs. Only one of them is a terrorist. <laughs> Seven. Do you remember the craziness that came with the sorrow of this country after 9-11? How crazed we became with fear. I had dreams of men on the street beating my father because of his name and accent. Eight. My father, not a terrorist. Nine. The census labels Middle Eastern as Caucasian. 10, Dick Cheney, not brown. 11, <laughs> Noam Chomsky says, if they do it, it's terrorism. If we do it, it's counterterrorism. The machine of propaganda is a strange and colorblind and colorful machine. 12, the Red Scare was based on fear of the unknown, fear of opposing ideologies. McCarthyism was a terrorist act committed by a government on its own people. 13. Ten years after the buildings fall, I'm in the airport security line, and the woman asks me if my name, sounding a tad bit foreign, and my face, looking a tad bit Baghdad, asks if the name is a family name. I've never known there to be a different kind. <laughs> 16. My friend Tim Perkins told me when he was a kid, he went to a largely black school. He's white. One day, his friends were talking about white folks, and he asked, well, what about me? They said, you're not white, you're Italian. This has nothing to do with terrorists, but I do find it interesting. 17. The most famous American domestic terrorist, Timothy McVeigh, killed 168 innocent people in the Oklahoma City bombing. Timothy McVeigh, not Italian. 18. The IRA has committed acts of terror for 70-plus years. Britain began theirs long before this. 19. The American presidency, like the leaders of all nations, comes with it the administrating of acts of terror for the betterment and protection of its citizens. The terrorist acts from our leaders that we do not hear of do not mean that these presidents were more courageous, only that they were quieter. 20. Sometimes, when I watch television, I ask myself, is that brown man a terrorist? What about that one? And that one is he. The first man is Wayne Brady. The second is Aziz Ansari. The third is my president. I do not know the answers to my questions. 21. Public enemy tells me this country is a fear of a black planet. 
Such heavy clothing fear becomes upon our bodies. Your coat will not protect you. No matter how clean, how starched, how bright, how white it may be, we are all Russians. Every one of us Russians born under a strange time in American history. Thank you. There's a poem I wrote um, with a strange title, as most titles should be, uh, called Galumpfdee's Nuts. Galumpfdee's spine, shoulders, and collarbones of mine. In my underwear, I write poetry. Two-headed poetry. Three-legged poetry. Poetry with tin spigots and no training wheels. There are flames airbrushed across my back, and I have bare feet. I have bare feet. Bare feet. Ah, feet. Speak up, I walk with sticks in my ears and I'm filling twigs with sentences, filing my nails down with memories. My love, it can shave diamonds. Scientists speculate over it. I come from the moon. Neil and Buzz and that third guy, they walked across my tummy. I giggled in a spoonful of cherub, tasted like cherries and wallabies. I write two underwear poems. My poems take off both underwears and dance naked around the candelabra in the living room. I am writing wrists and rubber bands on the back of the belly's bathtub, pressing my lips to the shower curtain. I whisper the goat man is in the woods dancing, the chupacabra, the book man, the golden nugget. There is a cloud that splinters like a kneecap inside of my leg. Buy me pants, mother. Buy me a hat. There are moths in my shoulders. I am shaking. I am full of love. I was full of love. I carved out pear-shaped slices of it and fed a million tired ankles. God sat on my shoulder like a cricket. I swatted a bee like a father's advice and asked for it again. Where can I go when every bridge has wheels? Run alongside its bottom, but I write poems with no training wheels. I write my skull like it was a color I was picking up and examining inside of my hands for the very first time. Standing at the corner of Central Park East and 63rd Street, I hold an imaginary football like a small child, stand two inches in front of a yellow wall, and scream directly into the wall's bricks, Go deep! As I fling the pigskin against the wall, I try to catch my childhood bouncing back at me. Go deep! I'm a three-headed galumph, a blue giraffe, a water fountain on the moon. Catch me, carbon. Catch me, galumph catcher. Catch me, lord. Hold me like a bowl, like how the clouds hold the moon, holding the rooftop of this city and my memories in my veins in my veins there is a lonely mermaid and she murmurs all day long she sings he sings sing such beautiful songs her throat is a girl I once knew her nose it is made of silver her backbone is a plum her backbone is a plum thank you Uh, a few more for y'all. Uh, as I mentioned, I live in Austin, Texas, but I hail from New Orleans, and uh, there's a poem about growing up down there called Four Stars. There was a wasp nest on the back porch. It looked like dead honeycomb. Outside was a hornet's hive. I stuck my hand out there and the sun buzzed loudly. Nothing could bite me. A caterpillar did. 
I climbed its tree, it kissed me with its back, its hair was sharp enough to leave four stars spinning in my palm. The world spun through my arms and crashed onto our street, so I picked it up. At the back of the backyard was a tin shed falling apart. Inside it, I swear there was a giant sleeping. I woke him, told him my dreams, and let him humming back into our yellow kitchen. The countertops were always covered in topsoil. My mother, she loved to garden and to collect marbles inside of mason jars. We were never allowed to touch them. I loved the smell of the air conditioner. There was a unit in the dining room and one in my parents' bedroom. Putting my face in front of the vents made me feel like Sunday. I could bike the whole square of the block in three minutes flat. My friends, Jalal, Putt, and Rue, they lived around the corner from us. There was a tree in front of their house too big to be a birch. My friend Sam lived two fence hops away. His mother showed mine what God looked like. God, he smelled like my father. Both their beards were black bears. Me and Mom, we went fishing in the park. I caught two catfish and waited for them to die. They swam in circles inside of our refrigerator because I never learned how to kill anything. In Mississippi, we ate every single perch that I caught. The grasshoppers there, they are as large as an almond joy. My sister, she had a pet rat. Part of his ear was gone. His name was Pierre. I named my pet mouse after a favorite book, Charlotte's Web. She is buried under a white rock in the backyard. The day our dog died, Pops found him hanging on the clothesline. I cried into my pillow. I was 10 years old. I could fit under the house. My knees did not care. Neither did the dark. After the tub, the hallway from the bath's room to mine was a dark tunnel. A tunnel that breathed only to swallow me whole. I shivered and was more afraid of that walk than anything ever since. Even now, there are moments where it still shakes me, but there were times when the night sat beside me on my bed quietly like it was a big man who had to do what I told him to do. He was too dumb or he loved me too much. Either way, he had the same smile. I had never been stung by a bee before. I'm a whole life. I'm a whole life. Thank you. Uh, I'm going to do one short one and then one more. And then Marilyn Nelson will come. So um, the first love poem I ever wrote was for this friend of mine when I was 17. And um, uh, a few years ago, she posted this photograph on Facebook of this little plant in a pot on a, her kitchen windowsill with this caption that read, uh, See the lemon tree I grew from a seed. See how big it's gotten. And I thought, what a sweet, dumb, and wonderful sentiment. Let me write a poem about a lemon tree. <laughs> so this is called Rosie's Lemon Tree. My beautiful lemon tree I grew from a seed. How big you have gotten. You were so little when you were a seed. Now so big. And soon you will carry such round and lovely lemons. Yellow. Dimpled when they are too big for your thin branches and they leave this kitchen of mine, ask them not to forget it, this kitchen of ours. It is my favorite room in the house. And lemon tree, when you pick up to follow, please do think of me. I will think of you here when my tongue is far too sweet and my hands far too empty, I will think of the quiet poem of your shape. Lemon tree, please bring a scarf with you. Wherever you end up may be cold. And if it isn't, perhaps 
you will someday vacation someplace where it is. <laughs> yeah, and this last poem is uh, called Sakap, and uh, it's sort of about me and my wife. Thank you all so very much for having me out. I was just following the little dog through the skinny trees. I was just collecting water glasses. I was taking them to the well and carrying them home, one by one, trying not to drop a single drop. I was wearing the same shirt as the day before, and as the day before that, and the day before that, and also the day before that. Asking all of my ghosts to join me on the dance floor. Let's twist. Let's shimmy. While the room waltzes, I will Watusi. I was Jimmy's switchblade. I was the three cherries gang. I was the tallest cigarette in the pack. I was black jacket, black jacket, collar, collared up. I was actually yellow shirt lost. I was laying in the dirt and piling it on. I believed if I kept trying to bury myself, then perhaps I could talk to some other world, but I just got dirty. My belly was heavy. For months after she left, I barely moved. I watched the sun go down, and in its absence, I dreamt of the bicycle, but I did not know what the bicycle was. I dreamt of the bicycle and thought, what a strange horse that fish is. Do I kill it or do I ride it? How do I do either of those? Instead, I rode the airplanes like they were church, staring out the windows, hoping my chains would not climb this high. At this altitude, all my angels were turning blue. I made a list of my body parts that no longer worked, folded it into an envelope, hoping my mother or my former lover would one day stumble across it. That list is a poem, not a list. So is this one. I rode the airplanes until they brought me 530 miles from the room that I was born inside of. My fists then were not so much smaller than they are now, simply tighter. I've been shrinking more and more with every single month. The South, it is my beautiful bed. One day bury me in it. Till then, I will touch it from time to time. Carry me inside of its wet, wet heat. I sweat when I walk. When I walk, I see my dreams come closer. What I thought was a horse or a fish was really a girl on a bicycle. She had small fingers but reached them towards me. I neither killed nor rode her. All I did was make a hand. All I did was get wet. All I did was shake my body like a library in an earthquake. I spilled books like holy water. The ceilings spun in closer to read all that I was. I was a thousand years of hard-covered spines, splinters on my tongue from licking the roofs of so many fallen cathedrals. I had worked so hard for my sorrow. So I asked my boss for the night off, caught another plane, rode it to a dance in Chicago, combed my hair, slicked back with pomade, and put my shiniest belt buckle on. I saw Susie on the dance floor. She put a quarter in the jukebox, grabbed me like a policeman, and asked, What you do, Ace? I told her I work at a malt shop, and sometimes I bury things. But I ain't too good at that. I ain't always too good at that, I told her. She looked at me like we had prayed on the same cliff. She told me she didn't believe in God anymore, and I told her I still did. Her and I, we pray on the same cliff. She held me like a handcuff. I swallowed keys. I danced with Susie all night long. 
I'm still waiting for that sun to come up. I don't care if it never does. I'm warm enough. Thank you. I'm very pleased to be here, um, but a uh, hard act to follow. <laughs> uh, I feel I should stall for a couple of minutes to give you time to shift gears, because what I'm going to read is... Um, Thank you for coming out. Thank you for inviting me to us to read. Um, I think I'll read some little bits of history, though. Um, uh, un unfortunately, uh, everything I've written requires uh, a couple of minutes of explanation. So, actually, I think maybe I won't only read history. Um, I, I, but I will start with a with a, a little bit of history. Um, uh, several years ago, 2001, I think, I got a phone call from uh, the director of a small museum in Waterbury, Connecticut, it's the Mattituck Museum. And she asked me if I would be willing to write uh, some poems in honor of what she called a set of human remains in the in the museum's collection. Um, it turned I had never heard this term before, but it turned out that the the museum owns a skeleton, um, which uh, the museum did not know the provenance of this skeleton, but they had just hired a team of forensic scientists and historians to do a little bit of research, and they had discovered that this was a skeleton of an 18th century slave who was uh, owned in Waterbury, Connecticut, at about in about 1760-something. Uh, he was owned by a doctor, a bone setter, whose name was preserved porter. The slave's name was Fortune. And um, when, the, when Fortune died, apparently he fell and broke his neck. Uh, the, the doctor performed a dissection, which was illegal at the time. So he, he took Fortune's body outside of the town of Waterbury and there, in secret, he stripped the flesh from Fortune's bones, uh, drilled holes in the long bones, boiled all of the bones to make them completely free of flesh, and then he carefully numbered the bones and reassembled the skeleton and hung it in a room in his home to be used as a, as a little med medical school. So as far as we know, this could have been one of the first medical schools in North America. Um, but meanwhile, Fortune's wife, Dinah, 
and therefore children were still enslaved in the Porter household. So um, I was asked to write something to help the city come to terms with this horrible story. Everybody in this city knew this skeleton because all of the elementary schools were taken on field trips to this museum. So everybody knew the skeleton. At some point, nobody knows when or why, somebody had written the name Larry across his forehead. So everybody knew Larry. Nope, I don't know why. So um, uh, the, the, the museum had agreed, made an agreement already. See, this is the problem with reading these things. Uh, the, the museum had already made an agreement with the uh, local symphony orchestra that if they got words, uh, then they would, the orchestra would commission a composer to set these words to music. So this is a little cantata with music composed by uh, Isaiah Barnwell, who's one of the singers in the uh, Sweet Honey in the Rock uh, group. It's a wonderful, she's done wonderful music, but I don't have the music here. I will read three of the solos. Uh, for this, the first one is uh, the first one I wrote. It's in the voice of Fortune's wife, Dinah. Thank you for reading a bit of it. It's called Dinah's Lament. Miss Lydia doesn't clean the doctor room. She says she can't go in that room. She's scared. She make me take the dust rag and the broom and clean around my husband hanging there. Since she's seen fortune hit in that big pot, Miss Lydia say that room make her feel ill, sick with the thought of boiling human broth. I wonder how she think it make me feel. To dust the hands what used to stroke my breast, to dust the arms what hold me when I cried, to dust where his soft lips were and his chest what curved its warm against my back at night. Through every season, sun up to starlight, I heft, scrub, knead, one black woman alone except for my children. The world so white, nobody know my pain but fortune bones. Well, I wrote that one um, filled with the horror of the story. And then I started doing some research. And I um, started reading about the history of medical education and discovered that yeah, this wasn't all that unusual uh, to use a cadaver of someone you had power over the what we the horror movies in which body snatchers appear those are references to uh, to people who dug up bodies for uh, for medical schools so I I decided to give this as my father would say cut this doctor a little slack um, so this is the song for the doctor um, pre preserved Porter he performed this dissection on a hill called a Brigador Hill outside of Waterbury. So this is called On a Brigador Hill. 
For 50 years, my feeling hands have practiced the bone setter's healing touch, a gift inherited by porter men. I have manipulated joints, cracked necks, and set my neighbors back to work. I've bled and purged fever and flux, inoculated for smallpox, prescribed fresh air and vegetables, cod liver oil and laudanum, and closed the lightless eyes of the new dead. And I've been humbled by ignorance, humbled by ignorance. Herewith begins my dissection of the former body of my former slave, which served him who served me throughout his life and now serves the advance of science. Note well how death softens the human skin, making it almost transparent, so that under my reverent knife, the first cut takes my breath away. It feels like cutting the whole world. It falls open like bridal gossamer. And I've been humbled by ignorance, humbled by ignorance. Standing on a new continent beyond the boundaries of nakedness, I am forever changed by what I see. The complex, delicate organs fitted perfectly in their shelter of bones, the striated and smooth muscles, the beautiful integuments, the genius strokes of thumb and knee. In profound and awful intimacy, I enter fortune and he enters me. And I've been humbled by ignorance, humbled by ignorance. This is, um, <clears throat> I was wondering, what can I have fortune say? And I went to a lecture given by Thich Nhat Hanh, the great Vietnamese uh, Zen master. And after the lecture, there was a Q&A during which someone asked, what is the most comforting thing we can say to people who are in hospice care? And Thich Nhat Hanh said, in his experience, the most comforting thing we can say is you are not this body. So I borrowed that and uh, made that fortune's song. So this is called, Not My Bones. I was not this body. I was not these bones. This skeleton was just my temporary home. Elementary molecules converged for a breath, then danced on beyond my individual death, and I am not my body. I am not my body. We are brief incarnations. We are clouds in clothes. We are water respirators. We are how Earth knows. I bore light passed on from an original flame. While it was in my hands, it was called by my name. But I am not my body. I am not my body. You can own a man's body, but you can't own his mind. That's like making a bridle to ride on the wind. 
I will tell you one thing, and I'll tell you true. Life's the best thing that can happen to you. But you are not your body. You are not your body. You can own someone's body, but the soul runs free. It roams the night sky's mute geometry. You can murder hope. You can pound faith flat. But like weeds and wildflowers, they grow right back. For you are not your body. You are not your body. You are not your body. You are not your bones. What's essential about you is what can't be owned. What's essential in you is your longing to raise your itty-bitty voice in the cosmic praise. For you are not your body. You are not your body. Well, I woke up this morning just so glad to be free, glad to be free, glad to be free. I woke up this morning in restful peace. For I am not my body. I am not my bones. I am not my body. Glory, hallelujah. I am not my bones. I am not my bones. from a life of George Washington Carver, who was a great scientist born in hmm. why don't I know that? Uh, I was born in about 1855, something like that. He was born a slave. Um, uh, and he not going to go into a long background thing. He was born a slave. He was raised by the white couple who had owned him. And um, he was educated in various towns around the Midwest. He would go to a town in Kansas and learn whatever the teacher had to teach. And then he would get on the train and go to another town and learn whatever that local teacher had to teach. Uh, he uh, finally uh, got a, a master's degree in botany at uh, Iowa State University. And then um, Booker T. Washington invited him to come and join the faculty at uh, Tuskegee. And uh, he spent the rest of his life teaching there and doing research and inventing things made out of peanuts and sweet potatoes for the most part. I'm going to uh, read a, just a couple of poems um, from this Carver book. Um, this one is um, a portrait of Carver, who is a very deeply spiritual man. And I started writing this, this biography of Carver because I, I had decided I wanted to write a saint's life. And I had decided to write about Hildegard of Bingen. And then something happened, and Carver said, no, no, no Hildegard now. Um, so I picked him up. But it, uh, I wanted to write about a spiritual life of, of someone who strove for spiritual excellence. And um, so this is partly ab about his inventions, but 
more than that. It's about his spiritual life. So I'm picking him up here as a middle-aged man teaching at Tuskegee Institute. Um, there is a reference here to his, his mother, whose name was Mary. When he first left the Carver's farm as a 10-year-old to go off in search of an education, the first place he went was the next town over, and there he lived in the home of an African-American woman named Mariah Watkins. So there's a reference to her, and I think that's all. There's a little bit of a reference to um, chaos theory. <coughs> the poem is called Bedside Reading. In his careful welter of dried leaves and seeds, soil samples, quartz pebbles, notes to myself, letters. On Dr. Carver's bedside table next to his pocket watch, folded in Aunt Mariah's Bible, the bill of sale. $700 for a 13-year-old girl named Mary. He moves it from passage to favorite passage, 15 cents for every day she had lived, $350 for each son, no charge for two stillborn daughters buried out there with the carver's child. This new incandescent light makes his evening's reading unwaveringly easy if he remembers to wipe his spectacles. He turns to the blossoming story of Abraham's dumbstruck luck, of Isaac's pure trust in his father's wisdom. $700 for all of her future, he shakes his head. When the ram bleats from the thicket, Isaac, like me, understands the only things you can ever really trust are the natural order and the creator's love spiraling out of chaos. Dr. Carver smooths the page and closes the book on his only link with his mother. He folds the wings of his spectacles and bows his head for a minute. Placing the Bible on the table, he forgets again at first and blows at the light. Then he lies back dreaming as the bulb cools. I'll just read one more Carver. This is uh, called 1905. Um, and the, the, it's, uh, it refers to two important developments in the scientific world that year. Looking out of the picture, a wild-haired, gentle-eyed young German man stands before a blackboard of incomprehensible equations. Meanwhile, back in the quotidian, Carver takes the school to the poor. He outfits an open truck with shelves for his jars of canned fruits and compost, bins for his croaker sacks of seeds. He travels roads barely discernible on the county map, teaching former field slaves how to weave ditch weeds into pretty table placemats, how to keep their sweet potatoes from rotting before winter hunger sets in, 
how to make preacher-pleasing mock fried chicken without slaughtering a laying hen. He notes patches of wild chicory the farmers could collect to free themselves from their taste for high-priced imported caffeine. He and his student assistants bump along shoulder to shoulder in the high cab, a braided scale of laughter trailing above their raised dust. Today, Carver is explaining, as far as he understands it, that fellow Einstein's special theory of relativity. He's hardly gotten to Newtonian space when a platoon of skinny dogs announces the next farm. As they pull up, a black man and his boy straighten two rows of shin-high cotton apart. With identical gestures, they remove straw hats, wipe their foreheads with their sleeves. Their welcoming glance meets Carver's eyes at the velocity of light. Um, uh, this uh, next point, my, my father was a Tuskegee Airman, and one of the things that surprised and delighted me as I was writing about Carver was the fact that my father was at Tuskegee just at the end of Carver's life. Um, so I was able to end this book about Carver by allowing my father to make a little, what do they call it? What's the word? I mean? Cameo appearance, yes. So this is the, this is, uh, the last um, scene of Car Carver's just about, he died in 1943. And um, 19, my father, I think, graduated from cadet school in 1944 there. Um, the, the base that the Tuskegee Airmen flew from is Moton Field. And so that's the title of this, Moton Field. From the airfield, a few miles down the road, a new droning drowns, crowds out laughter from the lawn, talk in the corridor, automobiles, and the occasional crow. There goes one, no, two, three, four. Like lost geese, they circle in practice runs from sun up to dusk. The professor's palsied right hand stutters answers to letters heaped beside his bed. Behind them, the amaryllis on the sill surrenders to the cold sky, its slow-motion skyrocket. Behind the clasped flame of its bud, a P-40 zooms in at five o'clock, high as a Negro has ever been. Such a shame, thinks the professor. Might have been plowshares hammered into swords. Sighing, he signs his shaky name. As Nelson tilts the stick to his left, pulls it slightly toward him, pushes his left rudder pedal, thumbs up at the flight instructor, grins, and makes a sky-roaring victory roll. I'm going to 
uh, I end. I have. I just let me find a poem to end with. And um, yeah, is it okay to read for another five minutes? I think it'll take. No, I choose. I'll choose a short poem. Shorter poem. Here's a. Here's a short poem, written for one of my high school classmates who did two tours of duty in the Marine Corps in Vietnam. Uh, it's, I come from a military family. Uh, this is called Written in Clouds. Now you're a buddy mucking ten yards away with a rifle, identical as an armed popcorn in the enemy's crosshairs. Then. You're saying, hello, darkness. Now you see, now you don't. Is anyone ever ready? Do you get an explanation, an apology? Or does the water that was you, that was 70% of you, re-enter the cycle and shed your name? Evaporating, condensing, purifying, quenching, forming ice crystals and rainbows. The same water for billions of years recycled in the planet's breathing helix. Molecules of this shape-changing skyscape must once have been you, Morales. They must have been you, Woody, Armstrong, Moses, Doc, Peters, Capadano, good Marines, all of you. Thank you. Thank you, Marilyn. Thank you. Um, I'll just begin with a, a question, and then hopefully um, it will be fall, it will be wonderful for all of you also to engage in a in a conversation. But um, I wanted to begin with you, Marilyn. Um, I, I feel uh, in your poetry, and especially what you've read now, there's a uh, a, a very haunting quality, almost calling uh, the ghost of history back, back to life. And I just wanted to ask you, as you, you know, write about Carver, write about a, a boy that was lynched, a young boy. How do do you feel that by bearing witness to this history, um, poetry somehow would have the ability? Um, to heal the same history, um, you know, we we always want to to write with a sense of of purpose. But do you think that uh, this incredible suffering could be somehow redeemed through art and and through your beautiful work? Mm. Thank you. That's a difficult question. Um, I'm not sure that we can ever heal history. I think. All the time, all the time, as I'm working on these historical pieces, I remember 
the words of uh, Stephen Dedalus, who says history is a nightmare from which I'm struggling to awaken. History is a nightmare if you look at it closely. And certainly for, as an African-American woman, I think sometimes, where could you go in history? Where could you go where you could be safe, where you could be respected? No place. Um, but it, but so I think history can't be healed, but that it can help to heal the present or to heal the future. If we, the more we respect our history, the more able we are to not do things again, to see when they're coming. Um, so I think it's a matter not of healing the past, but of healing the, the future. And I do believe in that. I do believe that's possible. Thank you. And, uh, and um, um, I think the beauty of poetry is almost like listening to the different instruments in an orchestra, that they are so, so very completely different, but when they're joined together, there's a sense of wholeness. And this is how I felt about both of you reading. But I wanted um, your, uh, I feel your poetry is very playful, very, very vibrant, and at the same time, um, very serious. Um, and uh, it has a lyrical quality, but also a very spoken quality. And if you could share with us, how, where does it come from, and how does it come um, together in such a, you know, almost harmonious way? Um, uh, that's kind of you to say. Uh, I, I don't know. I, um, uh, when, when I first started writing poetry and reading poetry, um, I would read whatever poems I was reading, you know, out loud, whoever had written them. And uh, it always felt as if the best ones that I enjoyed, the, the, the ones that I felt the most while reading them on the page were also the ones that felt the best in my mouth. And, um, and so I, I, I've always just been attracted to, uh, to the sounds of poetry. And I found that the more often I shared work aloud, that the better my writing came, that became, that um, uh, was able to hear it and thus see it in a different, different way when I was writing and creating it. Um, and uh, I don't know, I, I, I enjoy a lot of different things about poetry and um, I continue to do it for a lot of different reasons. And the, the biggest reason is just that it's, uh, it's a response to things inside of me. And, um, uh, and so they, they, they initially take shape through, through being written. And, um, but uh, there's something uh, magical, I think, about getting to share art directly to people um, that uh, out of the different realms of creativity that I like to explore, that with um, uh, sharing poetry aloud to people is a very unique experience for me as an artist because there's nothing that I'm uh, 
communicating through. There's nothing for the audience to approach me and my heart and my work through. You know, it's just whatever's on my tongue and I'm speaking it directly to them. And that's a very, very unique experience. You know, like there's a lot of different things that I get from a lot of different forms of art. Um, but uh, staring at a painting is very different than hearing a poet share with me their work. And not saying that that's, it's better or less than, but it's, it's a very unique experience to get to hear directly um, the vulnerability uh, in another individual. Um, and that's, that's a very large thing that I'm, a, I'm attracted to, particularly in poetry. Yes. This is to be a conversation. <laughs> yes, of course. Um, um, the 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 poem in which you described your inner self as the Moscow subway, having been in that. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, one one of the things that happened that I noticed happening in myself hearing you read is that the space was opening up. And, and it was filling with light. And I, I, I see some people nodding as I describe this. I, I, I have, I've never really examined my responses to poetry that, that often. But I was really aware of the fact that your poems were opening this light-filled space inside me and that at the end of almost everyone, I was smiling with delight just because of something that was, I mean, you had made it happen, but it was something that was happening in me mm -hmm. as well. So I, I, don't, I don't know if you want to talk to that or if anybody I else does. I don't know. That sounds really awesome. <laughs> <laughs> Go me. Uh, <laughs> I, you know, I, I, I get that feeling from hearing other people read, you know, that uh, um, there is really something, something about, like, hearing a poet very much connect with their work and, um, and share it, and as an audience to be there to receive it is, uh, I mean, some of the best things that I've experienced in my life have been those moments of hearing work that is literally, like, changed my life in that moment and then changed me in such a way that it has allowed my future self to be changed as well. And um, I don't know, there's something just sometimes magical about a poem being heard. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, would all of you like to join the conversation and share some, some of your thoughts? Yes. Marriage. <laughs> Yeah, 
Um, yeah, unfortunately, I, no, none of them has told me about buried treasure. <laughs> I, um, I started, I started um, doing these histories by writing about my family history. And that was, a, I think, an important way to start because I had personal relations, even though I didn't know them. Uh, I had personal relationships with them, and uh, I went with one of my cousins once to the grave of our, I think, triple great-grandfather, and we stood there talking to him. And I was thinking, I can't imagine doing this with anybody else. Um, but it but it meant that it somehow opened the door to possibility of talking to them. And I've had some very interesting, weird experiences of of knowing things or dreaming things, and then having local historians who are doing research for me send me the information I needed and the name that I dreamed. I had already written it into the poem, and it turned out to be the right name. But I don't, I don't try to explain things like that. I just accept them. But um, I, I, the only thing I think I can seriously say, in in honesty, um, to your question is that I approach all of these, all of these ghosts with respect. And one piece I didn't read is another, another book about another 18th century slave who was also enslaved in Connecticut. His name was Venture Smith. And I, he wanted to be written about. That's all I can imagine. He was waiting for somebody to tell his story because stuff was just falling into my lap, just information, just right there. And um, I try not, uh, it's, it's, it sounds kind of silly to say, to say you believe in, in connections, but yeah, maybe there is something. Maybe there is something. I've, and I've, I've talked to other people who've, who've uh, describe strange coincidences when you're write, when they're writing about people in the past who seem to smile on being chosen you you know you're in the library walking around thinking well I've got to find out how he did so and so and a book falls out of a shelf in front of you and it turns out to be what you need. I've, I've, I, it's not only I who've had this experience, but I have had experiences like that. I'm sorry, I feel kind of funny talking. <laughs> Oh, well, thank you. You kind of took a slap. You just slapped. You said your dad said, uh, you know, give him some slap. And you said, found that. But I just said, like, fortune's sitting up there, pulled down to the wall, right? And he's like, the doctor's there. Like, what does he say to the doctor? <laughs> like, man. <laughs> okay, so this is an example of. So Isaiah wants to turn this. It's the, the musical piece takes about. 
20 minutes to perform, and it's huge. It's, it's been performed about, I think, three times with huge choirs, like 200 voice choirs, a full orchestra, and African drummers, and five soloists, but it only takes about 20 minutes. And people are after her to enlarge this musical piece. And we've, <laughs> we've been talking about what could be added. I hadn't thought about fortune talking to the doctor. Wow, that's such a good idea. Any other <laughs> suggestions will be welcome. Oh. oh, no, I know. Thank you for doing that. So, yo, thank you very much. That's a truly excellent idea. I had not I thought. Said I got an email from her a couple of days ago because she's retiring from Sweet Honey. She, they're finished a world tour, and at the end of this tour, she's leaving, and this is the next thing she wants to work on is expanding the Fortune's Bones piece. And she said, well, could, could we include the family? Could we put the doctor's family in? How do we make it? But this is good. Is it my th when I wrote it, I, um, I wrote it right after uh, September 11th. And I, w I wrote it, is it it's, it's kind of based on the Requiem. It's the, the subtitle is the Manumission Requiem. And so I was basing it on a Requiem Mass. And I, can't, I hadn't been able to get that out of my head. How can you add to a mass? But if I, if I lose that, thank you very much. Thank you very much.